It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, good evening, and welcome to Can We Talk For Real, Block Talk Radio, Wednesday night. This is Terry. And Michelle. Michelle. Hey, hey, hey Michelle. <laughs> hey, Michelle, how's it going? Hey, you know, for a short week, it's just only Wednesday. It feels like I've, I've done two weeks already, you know. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We were talking about the day of work. I was like, you know, the day goes long, but lunch goes real short. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Weekends go shorter. It's like wow. Uh-huh. So, you know, this weekend we're supposed to be in Texas, but that's not going to happen for both of us. But you know, yeah, we're going to do a shout out, you know, to the trans conference. So hopefully, you know, it turns out nice weather. But well, you know, I've, I've heard from a few of them, and it seems to be on and popping. So all right, and I know that's that Monica is there, and I'm sure that she will be ready to give us a full report. Nice. Nice. Okay. Great, great, great. So, you know, we always talk about the elections a little bit before we start the show. Five, I think it's five states today or the other day? Tuesday? Yeah. Yesterday? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, uh, can, uh, you know, well, you know, they, all, they pretty much say that it's it's all over but the shouting I mean, and I think that the thing that's really important is that people really, really, really need to listen to what the Republican frontrunner is saying um, and, you know, and just sort of think about it. I know a lot of people who are saying, like, you know, we, we can't afford to be, you know, in a perfect world we could be afford to say, well, this candidate or that candidate. We have to look at, you know, what is, who who's up and as far as our many rates, although he did come forward and say, well, you know, if Caitlyn Jenner came in his office, he could, she could go to any bathroom that she wanted to. Everything else he's saying makes it sound like that only Caitlyn Jenner, because Caitlyn is the only Republican trans person that I know of, you know, so that, so, I mean, we really need to listen to this and listen to the rhetoric, listen to what they're saying. And, you know, and, all of us uh, in the blue camp, you know, all of us Dems, I mean, I'm happy that we're having a very vibrant discussion between these two candidates. But mm-hmm. when we get to Philadelphia, we need to unify and go out and kick some Republican butt. And you heard that here first one. Can we talk for you? <laughs> <laughs> And, wow. and, and in my keynote speech at the, at the, at the Democratic <laughs> Convention, that's what I'm going to say. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And she's going to mm-hmm. be there, trust me. So we have a interesting show tonight. We really do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It is It's not to say that no one should know anything about what we're going to talk about tonight. Everybody should actually have an idea of what's going on. Unless you've been, you know, in the hospital, underneath the bed, comatose, 
you should know about what's going on in North Carolina. And, you know, and, and, and you should care because it's been sort of like that rock that started these ripples and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, discriminatory laws and, and rhetoric. Mm-hmm. 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 And the one thing um, I think people need to really recognize is that it only has to start one place. And then the next thing you know, it's it's a snowball effect starting everywhere else. And you kind of see that. You know, it's just not, mm-hmm. it's just the fact that, you know, I think North Carolina came out because people were like, no, you know, different cities. I mean, they had the article about the, I guess it was the mayor of, of Atlanta was like, no, you know, he was asked, could you take up your, take back the, the ban? He was like, nope. And I don't, you know, just in my mind, I'm like, that is almost the gay capital of the, of the United States. There's so many gay people there. Uh-huh. You think this man is going to be like, no, I'm not going to give these people their rights? You know, there's a lot, and I hope, you know, our, our guests tonight is gonna, are going to talk about all the pieces of this bill because there's a lot of pieces uh-huh. of this bill, and, and people think it's really just about us, but it's not. Yeah. It's uh, mostly you know about what? us. I think there's a lot to unpack about this bill. Mm-hmm. There's things to unpack about about the LGBT community. There's things to uh, unpack about um, communities who have um, come up with their own ordinances that recognize and protect their communities. There's a part in there about minimum wage. I mean, you know, so there's a lot to unpack, but then there's also some really amazing things that, that you see that from it that you happen, which I'm, I'm you know, that which is so good that to talk to our guests, but to see, you know, all is not lost because how many people have canceled concerts? How many governments right. and, and businesses have said we're not going to travel there? There's been businesses that have stopped plans on expansion. So, you know, and that's why, you know, you think like when we talked about like they did it and like the clergy said, and they really pushed back. And, you know, when there's pushback against discrimination, there's a whole lot of people who got in, in line behind them and said, yeah, you're right, this is just wrong. Because a lot of this discriminatory stuff, they say they're doing it in the name of religion. They're doing it in the name of somebody's Bible. Um, hmm. And... These are people, you know, I've had people on the other side say, well, when you try to talk to them, they say, well, even Satan could read the Bible. Well, you know what? Tonight's guests are people who are well-versed <laughs> in the Bible and are well, and this is their life. So, you know what? Right. We want to hear them. Yep, yep, definitely want to hear those. And we've got a few people, um, and actually we've got a couple of people who are friends of ours on Facebook who are from North Carolina you know, a young lady who runs um, an organization for uh, homeless. So, you know, she's going to even try to listen in and maybe call in just to say, hey, you know, how's it mm-hmm. going? But, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part, what I like about this group, we always talk about the church. You know, we always talk about, you know, there's always churches out here, and we said before, the church is supposedly the root of communities. So if you're not talking about it, nobody's really talking about it. If you're really not spearheading it and doing anything about it, really nobody is. I mean, there are people who are out there taking those steps, 
but to make the big steps, to make the loud noises, to make it count, it's the churches. And I commend all of them for, you know, stepping up saying, you know, enough's enough. You know, you and, you know, and I'll tell line. you, and people who we respect, like, you know, one of our alumni, Mandy Carter, a good friend of mine, Luana Mayfield, when I talked to both of them about that and I said, you know, who should we bring to our audience to, to have this discussion? And they all pointed to tonight's guests who are members of the Charlotte Clergy Coalition. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking so shall we do the disclaimer and then bring them on? Yep, let's do the disclaimer. We're going to have each one of them kind of talk about themselves, but let's go ahead. Okay, our disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on Can We Talk For Real? Blog Talk Radio Show, <laughs> excuse me, host, co-host, guest, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who express them. The host appreciates your opinion and your openness. Can We Talk For Real does not condone disrespect to the show content, co-host, and or guest. The host or co-host are not counselors and advise you to seek professional consultation if needed. So, we're going to bring our guest so, on, Terry. Yeah. Okay, so now, we're going to bring on everybody, kind of, in a way, so that you all can be on the line at the same time. And then, um, I think, uh, Michelle, they actually already have an order in which they can come. Okay. But, you know, That's so... Great. We we do have Pastor Don, we have Reverend Tanner, we have Reverend Ross, and I think we have Rodney also on the line. Okay. Welcome to the show. Thank you Thank very much. You. Thank, Thank you so much. So North Carolina on the line with Chicago and Detroit. That's what we're talking about. Welcome, and let's kind of, um, I know, uh, Reverend Tanner, you're supposed to go first. So, Sorry. we want you to kind of introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you, what, how you got with the group, um, you know, before we get into actually the show. Sure, I'd, I'd be glad to um, introduce the group. I'm Reverend Robin Tanner. I serve as the pastor of the Piedmont Unitarian Universal Church. It's located in North Charlotte. Um and the clergy co I'm one of the founders of the clergy coalition. I serve as the current chair. And the clergy coalition got um, really started as a group of clergy several years ago. I arrived in Charlotte in 2010, um, and we were having conversations about the issues that mattered most to us and the people that we serve. And we began to have clarity that though we came from different faith traditions, the message that our faith led us to to be a voice of justice in the square, um, to really embody that love that each of our faiths taught us with different words and different stories but the same message, um, called us to begin to work together in a deeper way in collaboration and partnership and true covenant with one another. Um, so just about a year ago, we founded the Clergy Coalition for Justice um, and began to form right now around four central issues. Um, and those are racial and economic justice, education equity, LGBTQ rights, um, and then environmental justice. And so we have teams of faith leaders. In total, our coalition has um, 74 faith leaders that are serving in and around the city of Charlotte. Nice. Nice. 
and you you are a part of the group and you're actually the the spearhead of the group. And was it brought to you to start this or, you know, this 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 conversation or was it just something that you knew deep down you had to do? It was a calling for all of us who are founders of the coalition. Um, Bishop Tanya Rawls is in on the call as well as Reverend Dr. Rodney Sadler are both founding members of the coalition, um, and Don is also a member of our coalition, Reverend Don. Um, I can speak for myself and what I know of my colleagues now. We were deeply called to speak up from a progressive faith voice. Um, for too long, I think, that we had heard one story of religion in, in the media and in the public square um, and really felt called to bear witness uh, to the power of love and to the call of love, which was to leave no one behind, to stand for the, the least in our community, the downtrodden, the outcast. You know, what our various religious scriptures teach us um, to do, and we wanted to do that in an effective way that also had integrity, and that integrity meant that we had to be working in a multi-faith collaboration. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know if Bishop Rawls or Rodney or Dawn, if you want to share a little bit more about the founding of the coalition, I know for me it's been a calling. I would definitely say that it's been a, a calling to come together in this way. Uh, Reverend Dr. Rodney Sadler, I'm a social professor of Bible at Union Presbyterian Seminary here in Charlotte. And uh, I remember when we came together with this group, we realized that there was a bit of a void here in Charlotte. We have a number of groups that were bringing people together to, to do interfaith conversations. And uh, there had been a group called HELP, uh, which was here in Charlotte, helping empower local people, which... Uh, ended up uh, closing down about a year ago, and we want to find a way to fill that void. And in part, the Clergy Coalition for Justice was a way to begin to fill that void, to get clergy to get out of their pulpits and uh, be able to come into the public square and participate in actions that will begin to advance some of the concerns that are, are present and prevalent here in Charlotte. So the Clergy Coalition for Justice really is a group of clergy that are committed to saying uh, that the voice that we speak in uh, on behalf of what we consider to be divine or holy uh, does not only resonate within the sanctuary, but should be heard in the streets too. Uh, The love that we see in the God that we preach or the holy one that we preach should be proclaimed far and wide. And that love, as Cornell West says it, uh, in public expresses itself as justice. So how can we manifest justice on so many of these different issues, be it LGBTQ issues or issues of education, or dealing with poverty and race issues? How do we manifest those issues uh, in the larger public square? So that's really what the Charlotte Clergy Coalition for Justice uh, is intended to do, uh, from my perspective. Nice. Reverend Don? Well, I'm not one of them. Uh, I'm Reverend Don Flan, pastor at New Life and Metropolitan Community Church in Charlotte. Um, I was not one of the founding members. But um, I echo uh, all that's been said um, and that uh, I find the group to be uh, very stimulating. I find the group to be very uh, forward and, and activist and, and out there uh, letting the world see that what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a Christian leader. It means to stand up for what you know is right. Um, the people are dedicated, all the mem- members of the coalition are dedicated 
to making that statement so that the community knows that it's not just being uh, a person in a church or in a pew, but as a person that's, that's active in being a witness and a servant uh, in the community as well. Mm-hmm. And Ralph? And this is Bishop Tanya Rawls, and I am, am part of the founding group, and I also head up our LGBTQ task force. Um, I'm also pastor of Sacred Souls Community Church in Charlotte and uh, executive director of the Freedom Center for Social Justice. Um, one of the things I'd like to note, uh, in addition to what my, my colleagues have shared, is the fact that while we focus on activism, we also are very unapologetic about the internal work that we also have to do as a coalition mm. that is very that is very diverse uh, in terms of faith traditions, but also not being apologetic about facing issues of race, uh, facing gender-based issues. So what we own is that, you know, we're having to sail the ship while we're also building it because we're having to, you know, build within ourselves and among ourselves um, the kind of an ethic, a moral uh, ethos that really does align with what we say when we're going out. We have to first start with our own selves. And so I've been most moved and touched by the willingness of this group uh, to not run from the hard conversations. And when thinking about House Bill 2, or we call it Hate Bill 2, uh, and all that it raised, <laughs> it, it does not mean that everybody is would say, I'm ready to marry LGBTQ people. I, you know, I, I think it's important to note this. What people have landed on, though, is that they can say, Everybody should be entitled to equal protection under the law. Everybody morally should have certain basic inalienable rights. And so if anything bumps against that, we grapple internally, but we stand as a coalition together to say no on this particular issue. So I I wanted to note that because I think that's important to say because a lot of times coalitions come together but don't deal with their own stuff inside and Mm -hmm. and invested in Mm -hmm. Yeah, what well, Bishop Ross brings up for me, too, is that um, key to one of the things that has that's happened in the coalition is the way in which we educate one another, we listen to one another's stories and experience, and we begin to really understand the deep-rootedness, the politics of divisiveness and what we're up against, that otherwise, you know, kind of just in our own communities, and we get siloed, and we don't understand the ways in which um, we may be uh, being used against one another or the ways in which, um, you know, it's divide and conquer. And certainly Hate Bill 2 is a perfect example of divide and conquer, or at least an attempt to. Uh, but, and it keeps you know, us one accountable. Of the, one of the things that, that, you know, not only do, like I said, that I have people tell me, you know, people who, who I know and trust say, you know, you need to talk to them, but, you know, in full disclosure, my grandmother is from North Carolina, but my mother and I were both born in Detroit. And, you know, and I think that my mother was grown before she went back, and so was I. And being up here, often you have people have this picture of, oh, those churches in the South. Like somehow it's like, oh, well, they're like really in in the Stone Age, or, you know, you can't get anywhere. You know, they're all in that Bible belt, and they're all so religious. But not only seeing what you're doing, but just listening to you 
Mm-hmm. I mean, just listening to it. I mean, you just like break that box all apart. <laughs> well, that's that. This is Bishop Brawls again. That's part of the narrative that has not served us well, even here within the South. Um, the narrative that has been framed by those who seek to put wedges between us and seek to um, create these kind of boogie men and boogie girls, right? Um, you know, four years ago when we had the presidential election, um, they yelled, and the they in this scenario are those who seek to throw one group under the bus to advance their own political gain and also gain power or hold on to power or perceived power. Um, but they yelled gay, and that was enough, to be quite honest, to shave off just enough votes from people who were, were voting against their own best interests because someone led them to believe that on a faith-based basis, if you vote for support to LGBTQ people, you're basically sinning, right? <laughs> or you're uh-huh. supporting, supporting this kind of horrible lifestyle. And so now we have marriage, so they couldn't yell gay in the same way. So what they did was they picked another marginalized group, which is our trans sisters and brothers and others that are genderqueer, and said for them, they now are the new people for us to be afraid of and dare to do it on the basis of faith. So what they have done to our benefit has been to be so egregious that we have now, as people of faith, drawn a very strong line. Um, The Freedom Center for Social Justice has created a campaign called Do No Harm, and we have well over 2,000 signatures of people of faith and growing who have said, we don't want to cause harm, even though we don't always all agree on everything. What we can't do as people of faith is, number one, let people divide us, and number two, go and allow people without context or protest to use the word of God in harmful ways. So we'll be talking a little more about what what the smokescreen is that yelling gay or yelling trans actually is covering up, but in each Mm. case, it's cover up, and that's why we're pushing back. Okay. So when this bill first first was introduced, were were you aware of that it was going to pass or it was going to be signed as 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 easily as it was. Um, did you have wind of it? And if you did, you know, what were some of the things you did to try to, you know, educate people and get folks to to know about it? We we had twelve hours. <laughs> okay. Bill, and I thought it wasn't a long time. Was, yeah, this bill was presented. So, so this to give you a timeline. So just imagine. If the bill was put on the floor at, say, noon, by midnight, it had gone through the House, the Senate, and was on the governor's desk and signed, all within 12 hours. Most of of our legislators didn't even have time to thoroughly read the document and admitted that after after the storm hit on the back end. And they realized all these other egregious things, but it is unprecedented. And in fact, they actually even called the um, called the General Assembly back early at the cost of forty-two thousand dollars just to be able to come back to do this one egregious thing mm. before the General Assembly was normally and, supposed to gather. And I think what folks need to understand is that I, so we as a clergy coalition were engaged 
in the city conversation and deep study of the Charlotte Non-Discrimination Ordinance, which, let's be clear, took two years of study. Like, we, we took such intention and care in understanding the, you know, the ramifications, the potential of the non-discrimination ordinance, what it meant in our particular context. And so to have it undone in 12 hours where some legislators didn't even read the bill that they voted on, I mean, that kind of egregious malpractice of our democracy um, is incredibly dangerous. We should all be worried about that, no matter where you stand on hate stuff, too. And, mm-hmm. and I wonder if we should be increasingly worried about it, because I don't think that that bill was written in our state. I think that bill was written outside of our state, likely by ALEC, and then sent to our state, and put in place here. I think that there's a lot about that bill that seems like it's part of a larger agenda that will be put in place in other states before we know it. So uh, my point on this would be that it was uh, done hastily, but I think in part it was done hastily, and I think in part the people that were on the floor did not get to see it before it came out because it's not indigenous to North Carolina. But let me let me well, you know, this real quick, I, and it might be a dig to Chicago, but if you notice, the norm is becoming with political people to not read something or not look at something and grant money, pass bills, and then afterwards say, oops, I didn't see that. Uh-huh. It's becoming the norm, but you know, I think and that, too, that can't be. But I also agree with you that, you know, that there there seems to be a – boilerplate for this type of legislation and you're seeing also those kind of backroom deals where it's like okay there's a little bit rhetoric and and things passing very quickly you know without seeing the normal light of day or the discourse and even though you've done all your work you know you've done you're doing your work and how you know you can't stop that freight train I think I think part of the problem too is is that the legislators are trying to stop free expression within each individual municipality. Uh, if you look at uh, it's not only about overturning Charlotte's non-discrimination ordinance, but it's also part of HB2 is to prevent any other municipality mm-hmm. from doing that and speaking out. Um, it's, it's in other words, they're they're trying to stop uh, in the name of of justice the free expression and, and uh, uh, desires of individual communities. And I think this is extremely dangerous. Well, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. glad that you brought it up because I've heard people say, like, you know, this is really an attack on Charlotte because Charlotte is moving, Charlotte is progressive, Charlotte is passing these things. Um, did they use it as, a, as, like, you know, was that their boogeyman? Look at look at what's happening in Charlotte, you know, and and to give a lot of pushback, like, to other smaller communities or legislators representing other communities to sort of say, you know, you see what's going to happen to Charlotte if we need to rein this in? Well, in, in reality, this is Bishop Rawls again. In reality, um, North Carolina is browning at an incredibly fast rate. Um, in the very near future, Latinos will actually be our largest minority group. Um, and, excuse me, within a relatively short period of time, we will be a predominantly brown state. The other, the other thing that is a, a fact in North Carolina 
is is that it is increasingly a purple state. So we were very, very red, and as we've seen in the past two election cycles in particular, North Carolina has becoming increasingly purple. And so there are concerns about what those two dynamics are causing. So one of the things that North Carolina is right now is in a position that we have not been since Reconstruction, and that is that we have a conservative Republican governor, a conservative Republican House, and a conservative Republican Senate, in addition to a conservatively leaning court. So what has happened, and uh, Dr. Sadler was correct, there are those inside the state but also outside of the state who have begun to use North Carolina as a testing ground for some of the most egregious things that people would say, how on earth could that pass, right? Well, there's nothing to stop it. We don't have enough uh, Democratic pushback. There's not enough numbers to counter anything that gets forwarded. So if you want to test anything out, that's why you see so much stuff coming through North Carolina. But what they did not anticipate was the fact that we would begin reaching across lines as citizens. So we have coalitions that consist of faith leaders, that, and not just you know uh, the LGBTQ churches or whatever, but no, conservative, seemingly conservative Baptist churches and, and uh, all different kind of denominations all different faith traditions coming together on this. But also, we have labor in this conversation. We have big business in this conversation. This is something that is actually creating an amazing coalition Mm -hmm. to push against not just this bill, but other things that would seek to deny rights to citizens. And uh, I'd like to uh, echo what Bishop Rawls just said, too. I am a heterosexual uh, married man uh, who's a Baptist minister in this state. And I look at this bill and I say, okay, this bill, if it disenfranchises the LGBTQ community, is a problem for me. Uh, I can see that this bill harms uh, African Americans, Latinos, and other minorities. I can see that this bill harms women and uh, takes away their rights to, uh, to appeal if they have problems at work. I can also see that it hurts workers by limiting the fact that workers will be able to uh, gain access to uh, minimum wages, uh, higher minimum wages. I should say living wages at the municipal level, but it, uh, because it hurts one of our coalition members, one aspect, one group, we all need to stand up and step out. Uh, like Dr. King says, uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We all have to rally around it. And I think that's one of the powerful things about this larger fusion uh, movement that Dr. Barber has been instrumental in starting with HK on J and the Moral Monday movement, uh, and this larger, the way that it's been manifest in local uh, regions like Charlotte has done. It has really helped us to see that it's all a justice issue, and everyone's justice issues are combined. The more that we begin to see it in that way, I think the more success we'll have, not just Carolina, but I, I say that this is a model that needs to go out around the country. Uh, and one other thing before I, I, I shut up here, uh, I do think that there is a deliberate attempt by our governor, uh, our governor and uh, our GA to attack Charlotte. Uh, in the last several months, they've taken our airport, they have uh, imposed a toll road on us, and then they targeted Charlotte uh, to be the, the brunt of their force and their rage as they put in Hate Bill 2. 
there is something that's going on with Charlotte, and maybe because it's a bastion of progressivism in the midst of a sea of increasingly red, uh, red desire here, uh, that's a desire by larger forces around the country. Maybe that's why they're attacking us. But there does seem to be a targeted attempt to, uh, to squelch the power of those here in Charlotte as well. Huh. Now, you know, one of the things, too. Oh, I was just going to say the other thing I wanted to go to go back to is what Bishop Rawls was saying is that um, it's certainly it's part strategy, our coalition, but underneath that strategy are some significant moral teaching. So, you know, when Jesus is asked, who is your neighbor, he responds and, and shares the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Samaritans were reviled. I mean, they they were the people, the last person in the world um, that a Jew would want to have to share their household with, their neighborhood. I mean, they would never think of them as neighbors. And I think what that story teaches us is that when we are in these powerful relationships, when we understand what it means to be human, when we're truly in the transformative call of love, who is our neighbor gets redefined and we're stronger because of that, because we get out of the particular historical divides that have been used against us. So there's a moral teaching to the work that we're doing. And that, that story certainly comes out of Christianity, but there are other stories in other religious traditions. Um, well, you know, th- that makes me, uh, well, I brought up a question I wanted to ask, because I was looking at a picture and I thought I saw a Buddhist monk, you know. And with your changing landscape, demographic landscape, is this coalition, I mean, is it just, Christian leaders, are there, like, someone representing a Muslim faith or, you know, these other faiths that you're going to see as these different faiths move into North Carolina? Yes, I think that this is truly a diverse group of people that have allied themselves. They're Christians, they're Jews, they're Unitarian Universalists, they're Quakers, they're Baha'i, there are uh, we are everything, and we are those of no faith as well, all coming together to say that justice needs to be done, that love needs to be manifest publicly, that we need to be fair and follow those best moral teachings that we have inside of us, uh, that we need to live those out as we, not just as we worship on Sundays or Saturdays or Fridays when we worship, but also as we vote on Tuesdays, also as we legislate throughout the course of the week. These same moral principles need to govern us and guide us. You know, on Sunday we had just about 600 folks gathered in a Baptist church um, to to affirm um, to affirm their cry to repeal HB2. And at the beginning of that service, we kindled lights, um, and we had someone from the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, Buddhist, Unitarian Universalist, Hindu, Jain. I mean, it, it truly is a multi-faith uh, coalition. And, you know, one of the other things that I'm hoping that, you know, people talk about the bathroom part, but one of the other things that I don't, that, you know, I hear you talking about justice, and you cannot talk about justice without talking about the income inequality and the economic injustice that's affecting particularly black and brown people. And one of the things that this law also that, like, has flown under the radar was how it restricts cities and counties in the state from raising the minimum wage. You know, are people just like totally oblivious to that part? Are they so fixated on who's going in the bathroom that they don't 
are some people like willing to go against their own best interests because well, they're so moved is, by the hateful rhetoric? Yeah, this is this is a play that has been pulled from old time playbooks in the South, um, and the strategy is very simple and has been effective. What you do is you get a marginalized group, and so let's say when we're dealing with race, you you got poor white people who have virtually just a, a, a half a fraction more benefit and protection than black folk did during segregation, right? But you get the white mm-hmm. folks, say, that, that are poor, and then you present another group that's perceived to be less than that group. And in this case of race, it had to do with black people, right? So white people were voting who were poor for things that were totally against their best interests, you know? But they, but they could stand on the fact that at least I'm not black. Right, and you know, it's bad for me, but at least I'm not black, and so I can drink from the from the white water fountain. Well, I can drink from the white water fountain, but I'm not making a living wage. And the same people that have separated the water fountains also are keeping me and my family oppressed. Well, if you fast forward, you know, even when you think about you know women's suffrage, you had men who were not being cared for. Again, the same people shouting women and women are going to take your jobs and women are going to harm things. So what's not realizing when I'm hurting women, I'm hurting my own family, but they were still voting against women's rights. Right. And now here we are at this dispensation. And what we have is the, you know, we've got people who are impoverished, people who are being oppressed, people who are being marginalized, but can stand for those who are standing and admitting it. At least I'm not gay, lesbian, bi or trans. And so you put your foot on the neck of a group to make somebody else feel better and lull them into doing votes and making votes that have nothing to do with God in this case and nothing to do, because in most instances they stand on the Bible, and nothing to do with justice. And so what we have said is we don't have to agree on everything, and we don't actually. But what we can agree to is we're not falling for this okey-doke again. Definitely not during the presidential year, and definitely not during a time where the stakes are so high. So this is an old Southern strategy that has been used over and over again. But one of the things that had me stand was I had a older black gentleman, the last presidential election, say to me, now this is a guy that was a veteran. He had fought for his country. He was retired now, probably in his early 70s, and he told me that he had voted for the first time he voted Republican the last presidential election. And I said to him, well, what would make you vote Republican after all of these years that you've been voting? His his response to me was, I voted Republican and didn't vote for President Obama because I think he might support gay marriage. I said, but you know that that his opposition may get lead us into a war. He said, he, I know he likely will lead us into war. He said, but at least he won't support gay marriage. That is when I started standing on this issue of fighting for rights for all. Because if you could turn somebody like that, <laughs> 71 years old, and have him clearly vote against his community and his own personal best interests, because of fear of something that wasn't going to impact him anyway, we had work to do. And, and if I could say something here, too, 
this Bishop Rawls is 100% on target with this. This is a strategy that has been used over and over again. It's why the states of Louisiana and Mississippi, which have the greatest dependency on the federal government, are the reddest states in the nation. We have uh, allowed, uh, as whites and blacks, religious blacks, have allowed the Republican Party to manipulate us with great ease and with great routine. We have to find a way to definitively say, and maybe this is the time, maybe this is the time it will stick, that this strategy must die. We cannot allow them to continue to get us to vote against our own interests. And one of the things that we have to do is we have to reclaim the scriptures. I love the way that uh, Reverend Tanner earlier talked about the Good Samaritan narrative. We need to reclaim the scriptures and realize that our scriptures aren't really lifting up this uh, God who is sitting there as a moral schoolmarm trying to tell us what we're doing right or wrong. It is a God who's saying that we need to express our love for God by demonstrating love for each other. And the more that we demonstrate love for each other, the more we're manifesting God's will in this world. It says that on just about every page of the Hebrew Bible, which I'm a Hebrew Bible scholar, and also the New Testament uh, for the Christian community. It says that on just about every other page of every other scripture of every other faith that's out there. We need to be concerned about each other, and we find the divine by finding that in each other. But somehow or another, we've allowed not only our politics to be co-opted by the politics of fear, but also our religious traditions to be utilized as a wedge that divides us conveniently into nicely segmented groups that can be readily controlled at convenient political seasons. So with that being said, go ahead, Michelle. In some ways, you know, and I hear you, and, but I'm also hearing the other part. You know, how do you break this this juggernaut? Okay, you've got a conservative Senate, legislature, governor. You have, you know, with uh, there there's new voting restrictions in place since uh, 2012, and that are suppressing votes. So you've got these things against you. So even as you go out and you educate engage, refocus people, what do you do about that? I mean, how do you push back against that that, that, that juggernaut that can pull people in and in 12 hours do yeah. Vote. Vote like never before. Vote because they're trying to take our voting rights away. Lift up a larger anti-voter suppression movement that doesn't just extend across North Carolina, but extends across the entire country. Uh, make sure that we remind people that our vote was hard for that it was uh, people shed blood and died for it. Remind people of the significance of it. I had a conversation with uh, the director of uh, the uh, executive director of People Demanding Action this morning, and one of the things that we said is maybe we need to find new ways to encourage people to vote. Uh, so, for example, if you don't vote. Uh, then you have to do extra jury duty. And maybe that will help us out in another way, too, because the people that tend not to vote tend to be uh, brown males. Maybe that means we'll get more brown males on our juries, and maybe that will get more black men out of prison. So, I mean, we need to think creatively 
on ways to encourage people to go to the polls, making sure that people know that your vote does matter and it does influence policy. Had we come out and voted in force in 2010, none of this would be happening now. There would be no Pat McCrory. There would be no Republican uh, General Assembly, House or Senate. Uh, There would be none of this taking place now. But we fell asleep in 2008 thinking we'd won a great victory with uh, Barack Obama's election in 2008. And uh, the rest is history. This is what happens when we fail to vote. May this be an instruction for us going forward that we never fall asleep like this again. Well, you know, to that point, point, we've got to preach this from our pulpits. The truth is once Uh the scales are off your eyes, you can no longer see the world as you did before. And we need to preach this to our people. They need to understand the story of divide and conquer. They need to understand the story of Bacon's Rebellion and the long history of finding a scapegoat to amass your own power. And we need to preach that again and again to them and then model what courage looks like. What does embodied love look like? What does justice mean? And tell them again and again because there has to be another narrative that helps our people see what's happening when they are, you know, trying to raise a family taking care of their kids, taking care of their job, trying to just get dinner out on the table. You know, we have to help them and teach them and truly preach it from the pulpit. Um, well, in preaching it from the I'll tell you, you know, um, I've done some door-to-door stuff, okay, and I'm, I'm looking at, and when you had your 2000 in your, your primary this year, they're saying that uh, like 11% of North Carolina's registered voters participated. And in doing door-to-door things here in Michigan, like sometimes we have people and they go like, well, you know, either they they completely 200% go by whatever their pastor says, or they go like, well, I don't go to church to hear that. You know, I don't care if my pastor is for gay marriage. I make my own decisions and I go by whatever my interpretation is or if my, my pastor is against it, you know, how – so how do you how do you change that to where from the pulpit you're able to say something that boosts it from the from from that eleven percent and that they get this message that you're talking and this this need for change? Well, if 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 anybody really and I, I'm going to say this from the Christian vantage point because I'm a I'm a Christian Christian preacher, but if people really know who Jesus is. Jesus was a revolutionary. Jesus was always, always, always engaged. All of of Jesus' ministry was done at the margins. Jesus' work wasn't done, you know, in the comfort of the temple. Jesus' work was done on the streets and and at those places where difficult life was being lived. And the thing that Jesus was moved by he was always moved by the human condition, and in fact, is what got him in trouble because people kept misinterpreting his actions. They kept saying, "Well, Jesus keeps trying to destroy the law," and what he said was, "Do y'all understand what the law is? Like for real, for real? <laughs> because the real, the real law, the real law, is a basic principle of love and mutual respect for humanity. Because at the end of the day, all that God creates is beautiful." And as it is beautiful, it also, because it is God's creation, must be protected, must be lifted up, must be honored. 
And so it's the reason why you saw him with the lepers. That lepers, he was supposed to be around lepers. Why was Jesus around? Huh. You realize how many times Jesus was with lepers, you know? Mm-hmm. And you realize how many times Jesus would talk to women who were considered the lowest of the low? Why, mm-hmm. why was Jesus with women of questionable background? Why was he with dead and dying things? He, it seemed like he just kept going against principles. And what he came to say was, I'm here so that you can see what we meant when the word was written. This is what it looks like. This is what it meant. So I think right. prophetically, it is, we have a responsibility to wake our people up and speak to our people because that is the good news. That is the gospel message, that I care about my neighbor as I care about myself. And it didn't see that I agree with my neighbor. It said that I care about my neighbor. And in many instances, the way we work out our soul salvation for those who are Christian is we work it out in those points of tension. So if everybody that I'm connecting with, I'm cool with, I don't know what kind of faith I'm living if I'm cool with everybody I deal with. <laughs> That's not the way this is supposed to work. So how do you, so do you feel that, you know, you guys are saying from your pulpits, how about the Pope? Do you think that he is, that the message that he's giving is is more so um, opening up the lines of communication to, to what you're doing, or will, will his words come back to haunt the Catholic community? Because you got people out there, once they, once he said, you know, every, love everybody, you have people going on, well, you know, he's just trying to be a little bit too, um, I don't know how to put it. And that was what the man said, and I'm like, what is you trying to put? The man's just telling you what the Bible says, he's supposed to love everybody. <laughs> I, I think I, you never want to get a Baptist to speak for the Pope. Uh, that's sort of the identity was anti-Pope. But uh, that being said, this Pope has done an incredible job of pushing the boundaries, of trying to get people to get beyond institutionalized church and think uh, teachings of Jesus, reign of God. And I think that the more we begin to get beyond institutionalized church tradition and the way that things have been taught and the way that we've been living uh, the faith because of the institutionalized uh, ways that we've been doing it, uh, to get back to what the what it was that Jesus actually taught, what it was that he was pushing us towards, the more we can begin to do that, I think that, that we'll be in a better place. So I think uh, if I look at the Pope and what the Pope has done, I think he's given us a great framework from which to begin to do great work. His initial encyclical, when he talked about uh, the nature of the way that environmental justice is tied to poverty, uh, and gave us these, this, this new framework in which to begin to do work that had been divided in our community, uh, and work that had been siloed, to begin to do that together. That modeling of fusion politics right there, I think, is a, a great way to begin to think uh, in new ways. Now, I think that he begins, uh, he still has to deal with a great deal of tradition. He's got to overcome. But he's been starting to make great inroads by bringing different people to his foot washings and by engaging with different statements about things like divorce, which had been uh, firmly stated in the church before. Uh, he has done some things to open new doors. Has he gone far enough yet? No, not nearly. Has he gotten to the level of Jesus yet? Nope, not even a little bit. But I think he's uh, modeling uh, and moving towards a position that will open up the doors. And we that come from different traditions, whether we Christian traditions or Jewish or Muslim or Baha'i or UU or whatever, I think you can also follow that example. How do we begin to find out where our own traditions have limited 
the love, limited the justice, limited the larger engagement? And how can we begin to push there to get towards a larger vision of greater inclusion? If we can utilize him as a model in that way, I think what the Pope has done has been significant. Well, well, you know, I think, you know, having having passed to a Catholic church or two, am I saying, you know, <laughs> oh, but it's, but, and, you know, and, you know, not believe in the hype. Uh, but one of the things that I find from it, what I find interesting in everything that when he says that, it's like all of these people who are, like, so hungry to hear the very things that you said that he's talking about. I mean, and they're not just Catholics or former Catholics or whatever. I mean, there are all these people who are going like, church is supposed to speak these these truths. And so, you know, it's like he's doing a, a great, you know, warm-up act for what, what you're doing because, like you said, he's still within a structure that has a lot of baggage. But here's this clergy coalition that's saying, yes, you know, and there's people out there who are hungry for spiritual leaders to step up and say that it's about these things. Amen. I I think our prophetic (laughs) voices are needed now like never before. Um, You know, one of the things that I feel to our discredit, um, the progressive movement moved um, far away from religion in its earlier formation. And as opposed to um, more conservative uh, groups who actually ran to religion and the running to, and I'm not saying that the church doesn't have her challenges and other faith communities have her, their challenges. Now, and I'm going to say the church in this scenario because the majority of individuals who are moving some of these regressive policies identify as Christian. Um, and the people that a lot of them are moving are people who identify as Christian. And so what many progressives are awkwardly doing now is finding our way back to faith. And one of the things also, when you talked about the idea of, you know, us talking about real life issues, mobilizing in faith communities, and particularly when I'm talking about communities of color, you know, the church is the place that this work was born. You know, the civil rights work was born out of a liberation theology platform. And so we can't, our voices still have power and value. And so using that voice in ways that isn't just about stealing life, but giving life, I think people are hungry for it. I think they're ready for it. I think we have to come off of our high horses and out of our ivory towers and start being okay, working in these tension points where faith and social justice and race and gender and sexual orientation, where it all comes together, because we should all be offended that our trans and gender queer sisters and brothers and other identified folk are less safe. We should all be offended that they have to think even twice about going to the restroom to do a basic human bodily function. We should all be offended that students in schools in North Carolina now have to worry even more as if their lives weren't bad enough already, now have to even worry about going to restrooms in school. We should we should be marching if that's all that it was. And, and I think we should even be more upset. We should be more upset that God is implicated in this. 
They have implicated God in this divisive politics. They've implemented God in the midst of this hatred. We need, as people of faith, to reclaim the divine, reclaim the numinous, reclaim that, uh, that holy aspect of the divine, and bring God back out of this. Uh, it is, to me, as a, a professor of, of Bible, it is, to me, one of the greatest abuses of the Hebrew and, uh, and Christian scriptures that we have utilized this in this way. And I, and I, I think that there's a, a purpose for it. I think the reason that the biggest sins in the, um, the Western Christian world are abortion, gay marriage, uh, and not praying in schools, uh, particularly the abortion and gay marriage thing, that these are the biggest sins is because those who are defining the sins are primarily heterosexual males. So, of course, the biggest sins are going to be the things that you can't do, uh, that somebody else is doing. We have got to reclaim our traditions and refine the God that is inside of there because we should not sit silently as our God is perverted in the public square. This is Pastor you know, uh-huh. Um I'd like to just state oh. that uh, and piggyback on what uh, Bishop Rawls said is just that uh, – I'm a pastor in the Metropolitan Community Church uh, denomination, and it was founded in 1968 by Reverend Troy Perry in California, who was a uh, Pentecostal preacher and, and found out he was gay and, and was excommunicated from his church, and he had a lot of gay friends in, in California, and they had no place to go because they were not allowed to enter the church either because they were they were out as being gay. So he started and had 12 of them meet together in his home, so that they could have a place to worship. And from that grew the Metropolitan Community Church and is spread all over the world and is specifically there to help the uh, gay community and the trans community know that they have a safe place to worship. Um, it's, it is a shame that, that the, uh, the gay and the trans community cannot feel comfortable going and worshiping in a church, let alone be able to use the bathroom now in the state of North Carolina in safety, um, that that they have that they they need to have a a special place to worship. They can't worship with people from other Christian denominations because uh, because they're different and they're ostracized, they're marginalized, they're considered to be sinners, they're considered to be people that are going to go to hell. Um, and the people within those churches tell them face to face, you're going to go to hell because of who you are and you're living in sin. And there's no love there. There's no no way of expressing God's love in, in that kind of attitude. And so the, the, the idea within the Metropolitan Community Church is that to help the people within the church feel that they do have purpose, they do have value, they do have worth, and that they can stand up for themselves and feel that they belong to a community of believers. Um, in my church, it's, it's uh, unbelievable how important uh, they feel the church is. They, they, they say, there's no way I would not go to church because this is the place where I feel like I belong and where I feel like I'm loved and where I find God. Um, and it's, it's good to know that within many of our uh, states and within many of our traditions and denominations that, that uh, they're becoming more affirming and allowing uh, individual churches are allowing uh, the LGBT people to come in. But it's got such a long way to go. And and there's so much uh, work that needs to be done to to uh, make sure that the community uh, outside of of our uh, activist communities knows that that we all need to change the way we look at what religion is. 
and what it means to be a to be a Christian and what it means to love our neighbor. Now you know there's been an awful lot of of pushback from outside of of North Carolina. You know, uh, concert canceling, people stopping travel tips. You know, not bringing jobs. And I see that uh, was it Mara Kiesling uh, went bat- went in the bathroom, got arrested in North Carolina at the state legislature. You see hashtags. You know, I'll go to the bathroom with you. You see groups who are, are saying, you know, like. People are saying, like, oh, well, if there's a transgender person in my community, they have to go to the bathroom. I'm going to go in the bathroom to protect them or to make sure that they're safe. You're also seeing, you know, like the ugly side, you know, what people are doing. Here in Michigan, there is a, a semi-popular restaurant where someone who wasn't trans, who was a butch lesbian, just started, went into the bathroom, and a security guard came in, and literally dragged her out and threw her out of the establishment, wouldn't, you know, and she was saying, you know, like, I'm not trans, you know, I'm a lesbian, I'm a woman, you know, didn't even want to hear it. No charges were up. So it's great to talk. Do you guys have a strategy for some action? Are we going to, you know, for actions or, or, and not just like protest actions, like protective actions to protect and lift up the rights of our trans brothers and sisters? That's a great question, Michelle. Um, And so the short answer is yes, and we're working on it. (laughs) So, (laughs) yes, (laughs) the the yes part comes in that there are those of us, for example, the Freedom Center for Social Justice, you know, two-thirds of our work focuses on um, the trans community and genderqueer community. So we have a body of work where we're working with transgender seminarians. We're working with um, trans communities on the ground. We're in the process of launching a new trans social media network. So we're very entrenched in the work and unapologetic about how that work intersects with faith. With many of the individuals that are in our coalition, these are first conversations, not 200th conversation, you know what I'm saying? And so the fact that we're opening up this dialogue now, because if someone was like, my goodness, I just got comfortable talking about gay and lesbian stuff, and now here comes this trans <laughs> conversation. And so but part of what works with our coalition is we meet people where they are and we journey with them, right? So while we have groups like the Freedom Center and others that are ready to actually get on the ground, we have a new campaign that, that's launched called Yes, You Can Go. So there's a series yeah. of stickers that are going throughout the state where they can put it, you know, just like you see the um, the um, MasterCard and Visa sign on a door so you know when you walk by it, they accept that. You'll also see a sticker now that has the trans colors and says, yes, you can go to acknowledge that is a safe establishment for you to use the restroom. So we're really excited about that campaign, and it comes with with general information. But you also have churches where their people are really literally just learning. I was in Little Rock, Arkansas, two weeks ago, and this was a first conversation for them. Do you know what I'm saying? And But the mm-hmm. power is they were having the conversation because we're dealing with HB2. And what they said is here in Little Rock, we have our own challenges, and they're trying to push these bills on us too. How can we learn? So I think we have to be sensitive of people's learning curve. 
And so I'm proud of the work many faith communities and faith leaders are doing because they're in grappling mode in some instances. And where there are others of us who can do more, we're doing more. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing I just, I mean, oh, I'm sorry, I'm I'm sorry. So I think one of the things that is important to recognize, because we've been really struggling with the various responses and what, you know, within our responses to HB2, whether it's boycott, whether it's, you know, fundraising for legal strategy, participating in the um, civil disobedience, or as I call it, moral obedience, um, that in all of these responses, we have to recognize that the nature of injustice is that there is no perfect response. There is no way in which we can respond in an unjust situation that isn't wrought with the complexity of of pain and struggle. And so um, I, I think that's something that we grapple with um, in a real way within the coalition too because depending upon – it means one thing for me as a white woman to put my body on the line. It means a whole other thing. Um for different folks in this movement to put their bodies on the line. Um, and and that's part of the struggle that we need to stay in in the real conversations we need to have. Um, so, Reverend Don, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? That's okay. That's okay. Um, but, you know, I, just, I have a question, a question for you, Reverend Don. You know, yes. you're a trans activist. And yes. I think that especially Bishop Rawls and, 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 I, and you know, and Karen, I know, to be that person uh-huh. at the table. I mean, first of all, I know that it has to feel good to know that you've got people who got your back. But you're there. And I know that I think that, you know, you're there, you're at that table, you know, and it's almost like, okay, do you feel that you have to sometimes do like Trans 101 and then also like, okay, now that we've got that out of the question, out of the out of the, out of the conversation, you are over there. Okay, let's go to that because, like, like what Bishop Rawls was saying, some people are grappling with it. Some people don't know what to do it. And here you are. You are really right there on the front line. You're not, and you're saying, I'm not a victim. You know, you're beyond an advocate. You know, you're there being a warrior. How does that feel for you? Thank you, dear. Um, um, because of my journey, it's not it's not a difficult choice. Um, you know, I was going to commit suicide because of my of my journey and and my gender dysphoria. Um, and and I, I asked God to to spare my life and tell me how I could how I could proceed. And God did and provided the opportunity for me to transition uh, to become the person that I was meant to be. And I promised God that if God would provide the opportunity for me to do that, that I would stand up, I would be brave, and I would put my trust in God and be on the front lines to protect all of God's people, especially those that are mistreated because they're trans. Um, and so it's not been it's not been hard for me to do. Yes, it's still sometimes that it, uh, it's challenging, and sometimes uh, um, I uh, it, it takes a little bit of courage for me to do it, but. Most of the time it doesn't, and, and it's because of my faith and because of what God has done for me and what God continues to do for me every day. But what I wanted to say was is that in the, uh, because I'm trans and there are so few of us that are trans clergy in the country, um, 
it provides a unique opportunity for me to reach out to the trans community um, and let them know that God loves them. Um, God told me that after I finished and completed my journey, the Holy Spirit came to me and said I had to write a book and talk about my journey, which I did do, uh, and it was published in 2012. And it says, and, and the Spirit said the title has to be God Does Love Me. That's the mm-hmm. title because I want people to know that I do love them. I want my people to know, regardless of what the institutionalized church says, regardless of what the state does or the national uh, government does, I do love you and I do care about you. And so that's been my mantra and that's been what's, what's been my charge and, uh, and it's been my blessing to be able to be out in the front lines and to ensure that that message is passed on. Mm-hmm. Huh. How powerful is that, especially for yeah. hear that and to have you there on the front lines, especially for our young trans sisters and brothers who are, you know, they're making up those lists. They're the ones who, who are being, you know, beat up, who are still being put out of the home. But then they are to have this this line of warriors, all of you standing there, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And you're saying this. I mean, it's like your, like your voice is consistent with what um, Reverend Tanner has said, what Bishop Rawls has said, what every one of you has said a consistent message of love and of acceptance just for who you are and of each other. I've got two uh, youth that I talk to pretty regularly. Um, We have a program in in Charlotte called Time Out Youth, which is a center that's there for uh, uh, LGBT youth to go in safety where they know that they uh, can get guidance and they can get support. And uh, I've got two from that community that uh, that part of our community that I talk to that when they have trouble at school and and, and they don't know what to do and they're they're upset by the way they've been treated or injustice that's been shown against them uh, to be there to listen to them and to reach out and to encourage them and to let them know that that somebody cares and the guy cares um, and I just consider that such a tremendous blessing to be able to to do that. Because they're the the ones the youth our youth is the ones that's more on the front line than anybody else, um, as far as being abused when they're trans in schools, and I know that that was one of the major reasons that uh, uh, that Mayor Jennifer Roberts wanted to put together the the uh, the non discrimination ordinance was to protect the schools, protect the kids that are in the schools. Uh, they were the ones that were having the hardest battle, and yet that's the ones that now are are totally uh, left out in the open because of uh, HB2. So how, okay, so with the movement, and basically you're seeing in like in Chicago and different areas how the young, the youth are really, you know, taking the lead in certain social justice areas. How much have they uh, come on board with what you're doing in North Carolina? Well, that's a great young question. People. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, actually, we're very excited about uh, some of the work we've been doing. Um, we, uh, my, my congregation is predominantly LGBTQ, predominantly people of color, 
Um, I'm a queer pastor. And um, so one of the things that I have found uh, personally uh, encouraging, in addition to the impact it's having on the state, is in our organizing, we have groups like the – we're part of a, a, a coalition that includes the NAACP, uh, Black Lives Matter young people, mm-hmm. uh, the Youth and College Division of the NAACP, um, Union, the um, uh, uh, Labor for 15 movement. And so all of us coming together intentionally um, are working to build a intergenerational movement and one that uh, has basically built a bridge between the civil rights era of folk and a lot of young people coming along doing some amazing organizing work. Many of them are queer youth and queer young adults. Um, and when I'm saying queer, I'm not just talking lesbian and gay for, for older folks mm-hmm. who may be listening. <laughs> um, that was that word queer is being used increasingly for those who are rejecting the binaries that many of us walk with um, who are, you know, of an age where that mattered. And so, you know, it is intentional work. It is not easy work. Um, We've had our first uh, official meeting a few weeks ago, and it was interesting to hear, um, to see a uh, attorney an older white attorney who walked with Dr. Martin Luther King, and we're sitting in in, uh, in Raleigh having this conversation, where that person sits across from a Black Lives Matter person who says, and then the, the attorney saying, you know, part of my struggle with what's happening with the young people is, you know, we died and bled so that you could have a right to stand up and cuss and sit in intersections and not have to worry about anything. So when we're dismissed, or perceived to be, you know, mm. outdated, that offends us. And and this is somebody that's like in their 70s who said that. And then to hear the young person say, well, we never felt like we were welcome at the table. Because when you mm. all are holding these meetings, you don't invite us to those meetings. And, you don't, you know, so, so literally in this one, you know, two-and-a-half-hour session, literally we uncovered conversations that people were feeling but nobody ever had the opportunity to voice directly to the other person. And so we are excited about this work. Um, We're intentional as a state in terms of those of us who are doing progressive organizing to say this is not about Democrat or Republican. We have Republicans who are part of this work. We have people who are evangelical who are part of this work. We're just rejecting anything that suggests we can't be together as a movement. And that is the beloved community that's going to win the day and win the moral high ground. You know, that is so exciting because at Creating Change, there are a number of mm-hmm. clashes, just like you said, of, of that, inter, not, that not working intergenerationally, and, but not having a, a place, a safe place where you could sit and, and have those kind of conversations and see that it's not us versus them or you haven't done your time or put in the hours or, or felt the pain and, you know, you're not hearing my pain, you know, to have that kind of conversation. I mean, so what a, an ugly, it's a thing, horrible that HB2 had to happen, but 
Like you know, that is that is incredible, and that's the kind of conversations that we need to be having across the country. Well, let me tell you, for communities of color in particular, I want to say, um, if we don't have it, I don't think we have an option. I think we have to have this conversation if we're going to survive in a way that allows future generations to have a viable chance. Um, I am amazed at the uh, brilliance of our youth and young adults. I am inspired by the freedom that they walk in. Um, you know, I'm I'm at the end of the baby boom in terms of my age and stage. And so huh. there's this baggage we have, y'all. Like, we got some baggage <laughs> that makes it very difficult <laughs> to, to do certain things. And so this is the reason why, even throughout the Bible and all of our spiritual traditions, what is and, and indigenous religions, um, or indigenous traditions, what is held up is that the elders have their place within community and the young have their place within community. And it is when those two come together that you have the strongest community. And somewhere along the way, we lost that. And I think it's complicated. I think some of it is systemic. Um, I think some of these, uh, some things have been engineered. But the other thing is we can reclaim some of this and we can define what we think is important, and stop being so reactionary and begin establishing true strategies like what we've been doing with the Charlotte Clergy Coalition for Justice and other work that's being done. So do you see this new group, do you see the young group more, but do you see the young group more diverse? Do you think well, they're more I'm, diverse I'm, than what we were back back in the day, pretty much? Or so let me tell you. I wish, and when I say that, yes. yeah, I wish I could say yes. Um, I, I think things are still pretty segregated. Um, mm-hmm. and if and and in a way, honestly, I think um, possibly more so when if we're talking about students that are not with on college campuses, I think college campuses create a certain kind of dynamic and a certain um, a style of activism that um, inherently may be a bit more diverse than others. But when we're really talking about the power of the Black Lives Matter movement <clears throat> and some of the queer organizing that's going on, um, they don't mind talking about race. Um, mm-hmm. They don't mind talking about class. Um in those conversations, they're unapologetic and brash in many instances, but mm-hmm. the brashness isn't any more different than the way that we talked about black power. Um, I don't think that you ever have revolution that is done neat and tidy. That's not the nature of revolution. Um, it, it's messy, and it has jagged edges, and and the key is uh, to, to, you know, to try to, minimize the damage as much as you can, but also not be afraid of the fact that bullets have to fly occasionally. I'm saying that symbolically, so don't anybody say I said start shooting people. <laughs> I'm, I'm symbolically speaking. <laughs> okay? <laughs> symbolically. Oh, um, Mr. Brown, take it, you can <laughs> Right, that's right. That's right. Power is never just easily given. Power is always um, taken from the oppressed. By the oppressed. Uh, one thing I want to say about this younger group too, though, is that I think we in the church had better be careful. 
I think they're finding a way to have a voice that does not need us. In part, they're finding a way to move in that way because the churches have traditionally been, as we started off talking about tonight, much more conservative, often in line with the unjust status quo, and people have seen it. Uh, people can see that the church has been rejecting the LGBTQ community far too often, and when that happens, it's you're rejecting their friends, the, the younger people's friends and family members. I uh, was uh, at the rally that we had in Raleigh two days ago. Uh, standing with a group of protesters. And one of the things that we did is we had the young people that were there, the, I mean, and these are kids, these are under 17-year-olds, come and stand up and talk about what made them want to come out and protest against HB2. And they said, uh, one little boy said in particular, I'm here because my sister is here and uh, we're wanting to work for my sister's rights and my sister and her girlfriend uh, should be able to be together without any recrimination. I was amazed to see this young boy say this. But in essence, what he's saying is, if the church does not respond in love to my sister, I have no need for the church. And so many of these young folks are saying that. So the church had better be really careful about what we do in this moment. Because fail to stand up and stand up for justice and do the right thing, people are not going to have, the next generation may not have a purpose for us in their lives. Well, I think a dimension to this, a part of this, too. So, you know, I'm not, I'm sort of in in between these generations. I'm 32. And part of it is. You're a baby. Yeah. No, no, she's not. (laughs) Yeah. In a lot of circles, trust me. Um, But a part of this, too, is just we are the most over-advertised two generations that our country has seen. You know, we we have lived through social media and advertising campaigns in a way, in a way that, frankly, previous generations haven't. And I think it makes us deeply suspicious um, in some important ways. Not apathetic. That's different. I don't think my generation or or the one um, that has come after me is apathetic. But I do think we're we're suspicious of places that make that say one thing and do another. And so. Um, there's very little tolerance for hypocrisy in what we would call BS. And frankly, the, the church has not always, um, in recent years at least, had a lot of synergy between what they've said and what they've done. If the church is going to be relevant, um, it has to be more than a campaign to get millennials or the next generation involved. Um, it's got to be genuine, um, and there's got to be truth to it. Well, you know, I you know I I hear especially what you're saying about the relevance, because I've been to things and where young people are quick to point out, they'll look at their community, and then they'll talk about how you know how basically in some areas there's like a church on every corner and sometimes in the middle of the block too, but the neighborhoods look like a war zone and their lives are being taken, and you know. They're dealing with death, and so that's how sometimes you see them say, well, why why should I go to the church? You know, what has the church done for me? That's for my mom. And I know, too, like like Bishop Rawls is saying, like in our community, historically, the church was like a community space. You know, that's where, you know, you, you learned how to do this, and you have people you felt cared for. You know, there's, 
you organized, you talked about civil rights, and now people aren't seeing that. So as you raise your 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 profile, you know, standing up and taking a stand against HB2 and, and all that it encompasses and all that it's trying to cloak by throwing trans people under the bus, do you see that maybe your young people will start to see that relevance and and are you prepared to bring a new message, you know, that, you know, you can't do your, 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 your granddaddy's sermon, you know, to these kids. So what is that sermon looking like? God is love and the church is relevant. The church is needed. Huh. All of us need the church. All of us need the fellowship and the learning from one another. We all need the, the, uh, the advice and and the uh, wisdom that we give each other as part of the uh, faith community. Um, and we need to know that we're part of a much larger community than just what we see with our eyes, that we are part of a faith community that, that has a, a creator, that has a, a being that is above us and cares about us and is involved in our life and is, uh, is there. And that, that, as long as we uh, continue to express ourselves in love toward one another and understand that what we do is because of our love for the, for the one that created us, um, we've got purpose and we can continue to live. We can uh, continue to uh, fight against injustice and, and know that, that we're not doing it alone. Uh, it's so important to have that, that wisdom and that encouragement from our faith community. I think the church of our parents, for many, is over. Mm. Um, and this may seem kind of strange to come from a <laughs> from a bishop and pastor, but um, that 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 ship has kind of sailed. Um, mm-hmm. And and I'm of the mind that the church has great relevance still. It's a part of why I'm still a part of organized religion. Um, I think she, the church, has an amazing opportunity to find her voice within the public square and, as Reverend Dawn said, be wise about how that voice is used. I also believe God is bigger than any one tradition and bigger than four walls and that I think we will do some of our greatest work outside of the walls of the church. That's going to be a little interesting for some, but I believe there are there are increasing numbers of people who will not meet us within the walls of a church or a temple or a synagogue or a mosque. Um, they're going to be out and they're going to be engaging in indigenous traditions. They're going to be re-engaging with, um, their faith in ways that looks at nature and a range of other things. They are not keeping God in a box, and that's hard for us box generation <laughs> people. Um, mm-hmm. We want God in a box. We want God neat and tight. That's part of how bills like this get to pass. We see God in a box, and if we haven't learned anything about God, even throughout the Bible, every single time we tried to put God in a box, God blew the box up. And definitely in uh-huh. Jesus' life, 
Jesus blew every single box up. So the question then remains, how do we now see God bigger and translate that into a world who may never walk through our doors? That is a beautiful opportunity because I meet many, many young people of faith who are not all for traditional religion, for organized religion. So do we Mm -hmm. still have a place there? And I think we do have a place. I think it's going to challenge many of us. and challenges me, I have to say. I'm a... I'm a Baptist and Church of God in Christ church girl. You know, I was born in a box, right? <laughs> but but at the end of the day, if my ministry is to be most effective, I believe some of the most effective work, and I encourage all of my clergy to do this, and our congregation stands on this principle, and that is that to be the best, I believe, church we can be, the majority of that work is going to be lived beyond our walls. Uh, can I also I, say, I mean, I, listening to this conversation Perhaps it's time for the church to die. By that I mean, and I don't mean all of the church or all of Christianity or all of organized religion. I think the brand that we have had that has kept us uh, in boxes, the brand that we've had that has alienated justice from morality, the brand that we have that has perpetuated uh, injustices against the least, the lost, and those otherwise left out, the brand of our faith that has uh, alienated God from those people who are on the margins, that needs to die. I also think that we need to reexamine some of the traditions of the church. How have concepts like grace been twisted uh, and made cheap uh, in such a way that uh, we no longer think that what we we believe has anything to do with what it is that we physically and actually do in the world? Shouldn't our faith inform the way that we live our lives in this world? I think there's a need for a certain brand of our faith, a certain expression of the church in this era to die in order that the true church or the true expression of what God looks like in the midst of this world can come back to life again. We need a resurrection of a more authentic brand of our faith, of our various faith traditions that are truly engaging all of God's people created in God's image equally. I need to make a point of clarification. When I said faith community, I want to make sure that all who's listening understand that what I'm talking about are those individuals that surround us within our acquaintances and our friendships and our uh, and, and so forth, that those individuals that exercise and show wisdom and love within the confines of what we believe God would want, our creator would want, that may or may not be within a structured wall. That could very well be just our, those people that, that we're close to um, that help us with our making decisions and guiding us during our, our daily life. So, you know, because you know, there are people, I mean, I know many people who I would think who are deeply spiritual, but the whole concept of going to, they're not finding it in a church. And uh, and so that's why, you know, what you were talking about, like, well, maybe there's a place for some of those churches to die. Because, you know, because there are people I know who are deeply spiritual and, you know, by every account and, and thing that you go by are good people, you know, you know, and they don't go to church. You know, you couldn't pull them into a church. They don't want to go to a church. But that 
spirituality, that communion that they have with their creator is there and how they manifest themselves in that life, in their life. I mean, so you see that. So it seems like I hear you talking about an, maybe like an evolving type of ministry that's going to cover all of these. I mean, it's, it's going to encompass and, and, and be welcoming for all these type people. I think there's definitely a spiritual awakening happening right now um, throughout not just our country but the world. And I, and I do believe that there's been a particular kind of American religion that certainly um, Protestants, particularly in the United States, are a part of. And a whole lot of things are going to have to change, but that doesn't mean the sky is falling. It's opening. Um, it may mean that the professionalization of ministry, that we have a job, you know, from a community may have to go away and that we're going to have to have more bivocational ministries. Um, but, you know, I don't see that as a as a threat. I just see that as the nature of revelation, which is continuous. Um, and each each generation hears that call in a, in a different and a new way in response to the world that they live in and live together. Um the only thing I caution about or the only thing that, that does make me nervous or that I do think is important to push against is that um, we have to have some place where we are in transformative relationship with people that don't look like us, act like us, share our exact beliefs. And that, you know, that doesn't happen, has to happen inside the walls of a church, but there has to be some way in which we're not as segmented, segregated, and siloed as we are right now. Because it seems to me um, there's a whole lot of segregation in my generation. Um, And I agree with some of what Bishop Rawl said, that there's a lot of ways in which social media um, and developing trends in in my generation and the one after me are only making that worse. Um, So... And perhaps that's one of the things, as you talk about it, Reverend Tanner, that has to die as well, that segregated expression of the church uh, that has been a particular manifestation on American shores to perpetuate modes of injustice and disenfranchisement that have become distinctive. How do we begin to uh, move beyond that? And that's, uh, again, we can't have resurrection without a death. Something has to die in order for something new to come about. And it, perhaps this is that age. This is that time when that uh, that broken expression of Protestant Christianity in America that has perpetuated racism, perpetuated uh, homophobia, that has perpetuated uh, a, uh, a visceral hatred of the poor, uh, that this brand of the faith must cease. That in order that an authentic, truer, loving a more just version can emerge. And perhaps this is a pregnant time, a chirotic moment uh, in history where that can happen. But only perhaps if we are intentional and we realize what's going on and we uh, we become, as King said, co-workers with God in this moment. Maybe, maybe, the, church is moving, maybe the church is moving back toward uh, the original church that was in Acts, where they met in homes and where they uh, moved out and and worked and and acted in the community, but they weren't they weren't uh, how can I say uh, stuck within a structure, within a building, or within an institution, or within uh, guidelines that some higher uh, church 
governing body told them to do, but they just met in homes and worshipped and then went out and changed the world. Maybe that's what we're doing. Maybe we're going full circle and coming back. I think it's yes. I'm sorry. I think yes and. I think all of it, yes. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think yes to all of it. Like, like, God is big, and I think what we're giving ourselves permission to do is to allow the spirit to manifest in a range of ways. I think the church still has relevance. I think the organized church still has relevance, and all of these other things can also coexist. Okay, well, you know, Reverend Don, I mean, you, you, you said something that, had, that I've been thinking about. You know, part of the reason that this country was founded was about religious freedom and to avoid persecution. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it now, and then, I mean, you hear now when you hear what some of these politicians and you hear some of these things that are done, and they say, because we're a Christian nation, I mean, it just makes you cringe, and that's not what it is. How do we, how do we make it where you know we get back to that, and it's not like like that dirty word, you know? Because when that, when that, when I, I hear someone say we're a Christian nation and I'm doing this, I expect okay, what are they going to do to me now? How do we change that rhetoric? I think conversations like this help um, in terms of us owning the need for time together to grapple and to explore and to allow varying voices to be present. You know, on this call you've got, you know, with the four of us, you've got multi-race, multi-faith traditions, multiple gender and sexual orientation expressions. And because of that, this has been a very rich conversation, a very rich exchange, especially as your voices as the moderators have been joined in with us. And I think the more that we're willing to have these conversations, the swifter we will see, not even more so than change, we will see people unafraid to engage again. I think that's a win in and of itself. Uh, I'll make a shameless plug. I think there's also something to be said for going back to the roots of different expressions of our faith. So, for example, uh, going back to uh, the roots of African-American Christianity might be poignant in this moment as we think about the need for prophetic engagement. The African-American tradition really began, if you look at uh, narratives of the formerly enslaved, reading scripture from a liberative lens trying to find notions of truth and justice in the scriptures. A book I just published this, uh, this uh, month with Emerson Powery, The Genesis of Liberation, really wrestles with the way that this distinctive expression of American Christianity was born in the midst of the struggle for freedom. If we can begin to reclaim that sort of a freedom impulse, uh, it might help us to redeem the religious communities of this day and age. So I think in part, uh, and as Reverend Dawn said a second ago too, there are things that we have to go back to, things that we have dropped along the way that we need to pick up again if we are to go forward with the, the church, with the religious community. Uh, 
what's what's the next step? You know, what is it that people in North Carolina, if they're listening, or because I'm quite sure it's a few folks that said they wouldn't be able to be on the show, but they would listen to the archive. What is it that they need to do now to make your movement stronger or even become involved with it? I think 90% is showing up, and that looks like different things mm. in different places. You know, uh, whether it's showing up to a gathering in Raleigh like we just had on Monday, showing up on Sunday night to a multi-faith gathering, showing up in your context, in your family, in your community, showing up to polls. We've got to get out there and vote. Um, we cannot, we, can, we just cannot sit down. We have to show up again and again. Um, one of the best, one of the first pieces of advice I got in ministry is from a mentor who told me, you know, there are going to be plenty of times in your life when you want to duck because you're tired, because that vigil gathering outside and it's raining and it's a little cold and, you know, you'd rather watch that TV show that's on and you want to watch Grey's Anatomy or whatever it is. Um, you can't duck. You're just like, it's always easier to duck and there's always a reason to duck, but just don't duck. Um, and right now we need to show up as a people. Uh, and from my position, I'll say, I think what we need to do is we need to reread our scriptures. We need to go back and look at them and make sure that we got what it was that they were trying to say. I think we need to make sure that we have not been dominated by a mode of biblical interpretation or traditional interpretation that facilitates an unjust status quo and a unjust perpetuation of imbalanced power. I think the more that we begin to examine these core traditions and beliefs of our faith, the more likely it is that we're able to come out with a more authentic reading and a more authentic way of living. So if uh, our scriptural traditions and our traditions are to be focal for us as people of faith, we need to re-examine those and make sure we heard what it was that thus said the Lord. Mm. Hmm. Okay, go ahead. Tag on to what Reverend uh, Robin said is, is that um, not only do we need to show up, that's the first step, but we also need to speak up. We need to vocalize our objections. We need to let people know uh, that uh, what's being done is wrong and to explain clearly why we believe it's wrong, uh, but to make it, make it be a voice. We need to be a presence, but we also need to be a voice. And I think the ne- the other step we got to do is is uh, uh, it is also to uh, get in touch with our individual faith. Um, it's our faith that drives us uh, and and convicts us of what's right and what's wrong. And when our when our conscience, our spiritual conscience, convicts us that what's being done is wrong, we need to respond to that, and we need to stand up, and we need not be afraid but we need to uh, make a stand for justice. Uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And, you know, and like I was say, the wax biblical, we all need to gird up our loins because, you know, this is not going away. You know, we're going to see all of this. So looking back, and if you were talking to other communities, which I'm sure other communities are going to come and look and say, how do we do this? If you were talking to other communities, particularly other clergy communities and different cities, states who, you know, it's coming. 
you know, and how would you tell them, get it together, get prepared, this is the work that you need to do on what we saw happen? What would you tell them? Get to know your neighbor. <laughs> it's the short of what I would tell them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the first thing. Get to know your neighbor. Like, for real, get to know your neighbor. Um, not just passing them in the street, not just um, even seeing them show up in the pew. Um, know them. How well do they know their congregation? How well do they know the day-to-day lived experiences of those who show up every Sunday and pay their tithes? Um, those conversations will expose a lot. And the other the other thing is to grow a pair, and that may I hope that's acceptable. But grow a pair. Um, I think many people. This has been my experience. Many, many, many more people are supportive of LGBTQ issues than stand up to say so. And mm-hmm. and it's a range of reasons why people don't. Okay, some of it is careerism. Um, some of it has to do with the politics of their particular faith community. But at some point, the moral ground we're called to stand on, especially as clerics, demands truth and demands that justice be called for. It demands it. It doesn't say that would be nice. It demands it of us. And that requires courage. Uh-huh. And, you know, as, as Reverend Dawn said and, and as uh, Reverend Robin said and, and as, as Dr. Sadler said, you know, it, there is, you know, people think we just get up and do this stuff and we don't have moments. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm an out lesbian <laughs> bishop. I have moments, trust me, okay? Um, I, have, I have moments in terms of my personal care. I have moments in terms of the care of, you know, I'm in a wonderful 17-year committed relationship and we've been married 14 years. I have concern about my family at times. Um, you know, Reverend Dawn, I'm concerned about her and others of my trans family who steps up and stands up. This is not easy work. It is not for the faint at heart. But we also should not have to do it alone. And so the other, the last thing I would say is we also can't be multi-issue, I mean single-issue people. You know, I'm a I'm a lesbian, but I'm also a black woman in America. Okay, I have children, I have grandchildren that are linked to me, and as such, I'm concerned about education. I'm concerned about poverty. I'm concerned about over incarceration. You know, these we can't just focus on one issue. I'm concerned about justice. I have to be concerned about justice and not just us. And so, that would be my advice to any group that. Get to know your neighbor. Just start right at home. Um, grow a pair and own that anytime we're doing work for God and things of God, it's going to require courage. And lastly, we got to be get over ourselves and think about more than just ourselves. And definitely as faith leaders, that becomes critical. The only other thing I, that I'd add, I agree. I was just about to say, you know, getting over yourself. So Bishop Rawls and I have worked together long enough, apparently, that I have can complete sentences. Um, but uh, but one of the the other piece is like, I think we come across, and I hope this doesn't sound like I'm being flip or superficial, but you know, we come across as very earnest, and we are very earnest and serious people. Um, 
but this this work and this call and answering this call together is also soul nourishing and it's fun. I mean, there's just it renews you as much as it can be depleting at times. Um, I have extended who I can call as my family, and that in ministry, which can be so lonely and so isolating and sometimes so hard, um, is life-giving. And so for the clergy out there who, you know, think, oh, I don't have time for another thing, it's not another thing. It's a different way of being, um, and that can change everything. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for every now and then you need a good fight, you know, <laughs> Oh, yeah, the juice is going, you know. Uh, get in there, and mix it up, you know. Right. So is the mm. is the philosophy if the church leads, they will follow. Is that more the hope? Could you tell me the question again, please? Sure. I say, is it is is some of the philosophy? If the church leads, they will follow. People will I think follow. That's still relevant. I think that's still relevant in many quarters. Um, I believe that um, our voices showing up. Um, Reverend Robin used that word, you know, in essence, kind of a degree of you know seriousness and integrity. I think I think we need to be able to. And I remember uh, Robert, I think, was talking about you know, standing behind what we say. You know, when you think of children, kids learn so much more about from what we do versus what we say. And I think the more integrity that the church begins to walk with, the more that our people will be comfortable trusting us again. Because this really is about reestablishing trust in some instances. You know, I can say when thinking of, our respective congregations, you know, that uh, and and definitely with Reverend Sadler as it relates to mm-hmm. him working within the the uh, the, the academy, um, people see us on the front lines, and so my congregation knows. Yeah, I'm going to be away sometime, but they know that I'm away fighting, and that if I say, "Hey, we're, we want to be here," they know that I'm not just saying that, and I'm not saying it in a partisan way. I'm saying it because it's a justice-based issue. So I think if we want, like anything else, if I want to have people follow me, uh, the thing I always say about leadership, if I'm a good leader, people will want to follow. If I call myself a leader and nobody's following me, I'm just taking a walk. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) The inherent traits of leadership is our life, we are living that which we speak, and that is going to inspire people to want to follow. And, you know, Robin's point about the fact that, you know, this isn't work that just takes away from us. I I do believe we're called to it. Um, I don't think you wake up and just decide this is how you're going to spend your life. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, Robin has two twins. I've got, you know, I've got a puppy on the other side of the door trying to get in and talk to me. Uh, You know, we have, we have real lives as as well. Right. Um, And so, I think we're called to it, and that, that's the grace that encourages my heart and feeds my soul. And so I want to encourage all the others out there who feel the call but just don't can't see how it can fit. Um, 
it will fit. You will, it will work. But some of the answers you're looking for, you're not going to get on this side of yes, Lord. You got to go. You got to say yes. Then the things you need will come. And so I want to just encourage more people to step up and step out and trust that the benefit will far outweigh any sacrifice you think you may need to make. Uh, and let me say this, too, about whether or not people will follow. I think the, the I remember that, that parable that Jesus talks about, my sheep hear my voice, and uh, they follow me. A stranger they will not follow. The church has to remember uh, something that Robert Wilson and his work on uh, prophetic preaching, um, prophetic engagement, wrestles with. The church has to speak in an idiom that the people will understand. Uh, in this day and age, it has to realize who the people are, where they are, and speak in a way that's familiar and that will be resonant, a way that can convey what it is that thus says the Lord in a mode of expression that the people will receive. And I think that right now that means that the church has to bend, has to shape, has to move, and has to become flexible in a way that helps it to be more responsive to this world, a world in which uh, things that were were not imaginable 10 years ago are the way of life. Uh, this world is has changed. And I know that a lot of people right now, and I, I love the way that so many people have been working to try to uh, make the church more responsive to the current situation where it is. So in the aftermath of the uh, the passage of the Supreme Court ruling where uh, gay marriage became the law of the land, uh, some of the conversation immediately shifted to how do we begin to speak to the church, to help the church see how it can speak to this new world. And I think that's some part of what the conversation has to be. How do we get the church to be able to recognize the world in which it lives and speak in such a way that the people will understand what they're saying, uh, both those who are part of the old tradition and those who are part of this new world that we're entering into? How do we speak in a way that can bring them all together, too? Uh, at the end of the day, uh, that point that I think uh, Robin Tanner made a second ago, the notion of togetherness really does come back to the forefront. We have to, as the church, be a voice that brings people together. And in bringing people together and speaking in a way that they can understand, I think therein we find our leadership role again. Nice. I, I so, just have to tell you, uh, Bishop Rawls, I'm I'm still in that line. You know, you're not following you just out for a walk. I love that. Mm, yeah, <laughs> out for a walk. Yeah. So we are coming to the end of our show. Um, I mean, this has been a great conversation. I kind of wish we were in the town hall for three or four hours, but I think we could go that long. Um, but what is it, you know, because I know I said I asked you before, what would you say? But in five minutes, what would each one of you just, what's one thing you'd want to say to someone standing in front of you not understanding what you're trying to do? Um, I I would say two things. One is with the with the things that we've talked about. That does not mean, and, from, from, and I'll speak to my Christian fantasy. It does not mean that we do not hold on to righteousness and holiness. We're not talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, what we are, what I am suggesting is. Um, love is a fascinating taskmaster. Um, I found my life when I was living 
with the Church of God in Christ and the Baptist Church, and this isn't an edict against those. I'm just talking about my lived experience. Um, I spent all of those years trying not to sin. Okay, like the goal was not to go, the goal was not to go to hell. All right, I found that life in many ways simpler than the life I live today, which is how much bigger can I love? It's a very different path, and the love ethic demands much more of me because that demands that I even think right. That demands that I love right. That demands that I I, I see my neighbor through the lens of love. You know, love is a demanding taskmaster. So what I would encourage is that we get back to true love, and that will reveal all things that we need to see. I think I would say to someone If you don't understand And a lot of folks don't um, And I don't understand their story Just share the road with us You know, just just journey with us For a small amount of time um, I don't think we that any of us here on this call Mean to say um, that we're somehow done with our formation, right? That we know all the truth Or, or, or even fully understand the call of love in our lives um, and what the love ethic requires of us. Um, so for those who don't understand, I would say just risk sharing the road, even for, you know, half a mile here. Just share the journey um, and, and then see if you aren't changed. I know I would be changed by that um, if we could really break out some of these particular identities that we have placed ourselves inside of. Um, because we're so much more than political positions. Mm. Reverend Don, I would add on to that uh, what Reverend Robin said and the fact that uh, I would encourage people to uh, to not not only go on the journey with us, but to actually uh, uh, put themselves in our shoes and and think of themselves as how they would feel if they were in the same position. Uh, when I'm talking to people about uh, trans rights and about my journey, I just I talk to them and I try to get them to relate to, well, if it was you or if it was your daughter or if it was your son um, that was transitioning, how would you feel? Uh, would you have the same stance that you've got now? Would you forbid them from, from uh, using the restroom? Uh, you know, would you forbid them from having uh, uh, equality? Uh, you know, put yourselves in our shoes and try to understand and empathize with us. And if you do, then then you come to truly uh, feel uh, what we feel, and then, then it becomes important to you. And then you say, oh, yeah, well, now I understand. I wasn't thinking of it from the inside. I was thinking it from the outside. We need to put ourselves in each other's shoes. And, and understand what it's like to suffer and to have the injustice. If it was if it was on us, would we feel comfortable with it, or you know, or what would we want to change, and then move forward and make that change? I, uh, I guess it's my turn to weigh in. I mm-hmm. think we need a we need a anthropologically based theology. Uh, by that I mean we need to begin to look at people in such a way as to see God. We need to imagine that our encounters each and every day 
with the human beings we see are encounters with God in one of God's more unusual costumes. And those that we find least readily uh, acceptable based upon our paradigms are perhaps those who might be the greatest expressions of God among us. If we can begin to truly value human beings, if we can begin to truly imagine the divinity that lingers in that image of God that is imprinted, uh, as King said, the indelible stamp of the image of God on every human being, which is in equal portions in all of us, if we can begin to reimagine that and reimagine seeing God through the face of the other, then I think we might just peer behind the veil that hides the very face of God. Wow. Perfect Uh words to end tonight's show on. Thank you, thank you, Thank you, thank you, one and all. Yep. I am, yeah, I am inspired. Yep. I gotta agree with her. This, this Praise is a great show. And we thank you for allowing us to come on your show. Thank you so much. And, mm-hmm. and don't be surprised; you'll hear from us again. <laughs> oh yes, <Thank> definitely, <laughs> definitely. Mm-hmm. Have a good evening. God Have bless evening. you. Thanks. Okay, good night. So, Michelle, next week, yep. real quick, what do you think is coming week, on? Well, we're hoping to get a, a recap of this week's Black Trans Advocacy Conference happening right now with our family and friends in Dallas, Texas. We love you, folks. <laughs> yeah, we love you, love you. So, with that, we're going to be signing off quickly. I'm Terry. I want to say good night. Right. And good night, Terry. Good night, audience. This is Michelle. <laughs> good night, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Love you, babe. Mm-hmm. You too. My friend. <laughs> See Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.